John 15, verse 1, probably one of the most significant chapters in the book of John, one of my favorite passages in the whole of the Bible because of its fruitfulness in my life and in the life of believers. This description that Jesus gives of being the vine and our being the branches and what that produces and proves in our lives. So, to begin with, right there in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Uh, the fact that it says he is the true vine indicates that there are others who are not the true vine that would think of themselves as being the vine or what we should all be attached to, and they're not. It is Jesus alone who is the vine, the thing that provides life. Now, he describes the Father as the vine dresser. In this ancient culture, especially in the vineyards, the vine dresser usually was the owner, but sometimes they would be hired, men of knowledge, who worked in the vineyards and would dress the vines. The vines during the off season sometimes were cut free of the trellis and the trellis would be repaired or replaced in order that the vine could have better growth. And then being reattached to the trellis where it would be able to grow, the vine expands. So it's going to grow and spread across the ground and need attention. So they would have to lift it up and tie it up and weave it through the trellis. So the vine dresser actually has a lot to do in tending to the vine. And in tending to the vine, they would wash the fruit and wash the leaves the mud and the dirt that it had laid in would hamper its growth so that when they're done they have a very pristine plant growing on the trellis that's providing the fruitfulness so when jesus is saying i am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser there is a very intimate relationship there between vine and vine dresser that produces fruitfulness. Now in verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In reading about vine dressing, I was interested to discover that when this plant draws the water and the nutrient out of the ground, <clears throat> it's designed by God in its DNA structure that it equally divides the strength and vitality between wood growth and fruit. So it's going to grow as much vine as it does produce fruit. So the vine dresser actually pays attention to what's being fruitful and what's just growth. And the vine dresser will limit growth in order to produce fruitfulness. So if the vine is just expanding and expanding and expanding, it's actually much better as far as fruitfulness goes to cut the vine back so that it will deviate all of that growth into the fruit because the fruit is what you want the, the vine to expand. You want more and more vineyard all of the time. But if you're just continuously expanding the wood growth 
And because it's pushing all of that energy into wood growth and not producing grapes, which is your ultimate goal, then the size of your vines doesn't yield what you need to as far as fruitfulness and ultimately prosperity in the eyes of the vineyard owner. So this relationship between pruning and fruitfulness is something that the vine dresser has to understand. You know, if we're running this allegory between us as the church and individuals and Christ, he being the vine, we're being branches, fruitfulness being twofold, actually, for the note takers, fruit would, number one, be a reproduction of ourselves. Right? We're the fruit of Christ's work. Fellow believers leading people to Christ. That's fruitfulness. But then also the fruit of the Spirit within our lives. Love, number one, for the Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Then when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those are adjectives of love. So we shouldn't necessarily be looking for more and more patience, more and more this or that, as much as love is going to produce that. As we love the Lord and as we love our neighbor as ourselves, those things will be the obvious outcome of our fruitfulness. If you took the grape and ate of it, in its prime, in a perfectly formed fruit, you could say the fruit was sweet and juicy and perhaps tart. All of those things are descriptions of the fruit. So the more of it that you have, the more of each one of those things you have. Love is the fruit. Joy, patience, peace, kindness, those are just adjectives of the fruit you have great abundance of these things it is the fruit so the fruit the lord is looking for is that reproduction and the fruit of the spirit in our lives and the lord is pruning branches in order to produce that sometimes the pain of growth is directly associated in our lives with reduction. It's a strange thing. As we are wanting more and more, God is insisting upon less and less so that we would produce fruit. We want to expand. We want to do. We want to go. And God is saying things to us like, be still and know that I am God. Slow down. Calm down. Sit down. And listen to me. That, that old thing, less is more. Very often in our relationship with God, that is the case. We think of fruitfulness as expansion, right? The more I do, the farther I go, the longer I burn. The you know, Exhaustion does not equal productivity. Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Have... We each experience the trying and striving and yearning for even the work of the Lord. And then the Lord just orchestrates that one conversation that we can't believe the way he put us in that person's path. And they just surrender. And we fly along on the high from that experience for many days. God just opened the opportunity. There wasn't a great effort. You never walk by the vineyard, the apple orchard, and hear the trees straining at producing fruit. They just abide. They just simply absorb what is being provided to them. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Now, I have this tattoo 
on my forearm in plain sight of myself to remind me of these verses. This is the maple leaf, and right now the leaves are changing. The leaves are changing because they're losing their chlorophyll. And what you're seeing right now are the true colors of the leaves. That's the actual color of the leaf all the time. The chlorophyll floods the leaf. As the cold comes on, the tree is designed by God to shed the foliage because it can't handle the ice and the snow load on all of those leaves. Very, very damaging to the hardwoods. The hardwoods freeze and get brittle. If they carry the snow load, they break. The softwoods have a flexibility to them, and they don't get anywhere near as brittle in the cold. So they handle the snow load better. The uh, deciduous tree, the broadleaf, needs to shed its leaves to protect the tree. So as the cold comes on, the leaf actually builds a layer of cork between the leaf, stem, and the branch. So even before the leaf falls off, it's been separated from the tree. The Cambrian membrane is no longer carrying the moisture, the water, the sugars from the root system up into the leaves to produce chlorophyll. The fruitfulness is not carrying back down into the root system to nourish the tree. The tree is going to sleep for the winter. The leaves are shutting off their production. They're literally separating themselves from the tree and in just a few weeks, that cork dries out. All the moisture goes away out of the cork, and it gets very fragile and very brittle. Wind blows, we get one good rainstorm, and they all go to the ground. The leaves are off. The true color of the leaf, separated from the tree, even while it's still on the tree. My true colors without Christ when the cold of my walk if I am not ever abiding in him then his life doesn't flow into me and my wife especially is the first to notice ah the old man has returned your true colors are shining through I get to see you for who you are then others begin to notice you and me and begin to question what's going on. Because the beautiful life of Christ that was seen previously is going away. We need ever be attached to Christ unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. A branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Oh, look, we may never have a worldwide ministry. But if we abide in Christ, we will see the fruit of Christ in our lives, our hearts, our minds, our families, the people around us. Some of the greatest teachers in Christianity have been rejected by Christianity, because they were so close to the Lord that they were abrasive to much of the body of Christ. Because much of the body of Christ wants to befriend the world. They want to be part of the world. So those that are close to the Lord, that have His life flowing through them, are offensive to those who begin to show their true colors. So, when you read of their lives, they might not have had giant ministries, but they knew the Lord very well. A.W. Tozier is one of those 
as you read his writings. Andrew Murray is one of those who had great relationship with the Lord and yet not a huge ministry in comparison to other people. You know, the differences we see in fruitfulness, it's not always in the size of the branches. It's not always in the size of the vineyard. It's in the fruitfulness to the Lord. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Have you ever seen a tree branch that breaks off in the spring of the year right as the buds are on and then watch it on the ground? So interesting. As it goes through the budding process and the leaf starts to come out over those days, but then there's no life because it's not attached to the tree anymore. So the life is there briefly, but it's already severed in its relationship to the tree. And while the bud may turn to leaf, the fruitfulness is already gone and it begins to wither. And while it lays on the ground, those leaves go brown. <coughs> and then the evidence that the limb is dead. I've seen it many, many times because I've worked in the tree service for many years. I've been to locations where magnificent oak trees have come to the ground and they go through a leafing process. There's actually a practice in certain harvesting of trees when they want the wood to dry out a little quicker. They will cut them with the leaves on them before they're even ready to take them in. Leave the trees on the ground with the leaves on them and those leaves drawing the life out of the tree wick the tree wood dry much more quickly. So if you're looking for firewood to cut the trees and leave them on the ground before you limb them out and take all that foliage off, leave them on the ground. There's quite a thought in this process of what the Lord is saying about fruitfulness and how even when a branch is severed, there may be some evidence of life there, but it's withered and they gather them and throw them in the fire and they are burned. If you Abide in me and my words abide in you. You will ask what I what you desire and it shall be done for you. If his words abide in you, if you, his words remain in your heart. We are governed by his word as believers. So many people have abused these verses to think that the Lord is like Aladdin's lamp. And just rub in the right direction and say the magic words and God gives you what you want. There are preachers, many of them on television, who insist that you just need only ask God and he'll give you whatever you ask. Whatever we ask has to be in accordance with his word. The book of James tells us that we ask and do not receive because we ask amiss that we might spend it upon our lusts, the things that our flesh desires. I've watched people within the ministry who pray for things and they're convinced God is giving them to them. I had a conversation with a man years ago who had spent a ridiculous amount of money on a vehicle in the ministry I confronted him and just said, this seems absurd. You've got this vehicle that's worth so many tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm not talking about, you know, being responsible and having a good vehicle. This thing was absorbent. And he said, oh, he had asked the Lord for it because it was such a beautiful vehicle. It would attract the young people from the community, and then he would be able to share the gospel with them. To which I said, you're delusional. <laughs> yeah, if you're a rocker. Christ did not cause you to be burdened with a payment to the bank so that you could minister to young people. 
You know, if anything, the Lord would want you to be free from that type of burden in order to minister to the young people. How about driving around in a clunker so that the young people could see you doing that in order to serve Christ, in order to take care of your family? Go the opposite direction of the world. Rather than <clears throat> doing what John later says about the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, following after the things of the world. It's an unfortunate thing a lot of people do. Whatever you might ask is in accordance with his word. You can't ask things outside what his word would provide for you. He says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. Now keep in mind, the Lord was thinking of men like Jeremiah, the great prophet, the weeping prophet, so-called because the Lord told him he was not going to have any converts. No one was going to listen to his ministry. But God was going to be faithful to speak through him to the nation, and to the generation that was being lost. So that no one could ever say of God that he had grown silent or stopped delivering his message. Imagine the accusations that had come. If the Lord didn't continue to deliver his message, that generation could look back and say, if only we had heard, if only someone had preached to us, if only we had known Jeremiah was there, delivering the word. What was the fruitfulness? Jeremiah's ministry was fruitful because he was obedient. That was the fruitfulness. Jeremiah had the fruit in his own life. The obedience to abide in Christ. To remain true to the message. It's an unfortunate thing to see the church so fascinated with size. Oh, we go to a mega church. I'm not just saying that because there's a little group here this evening. I'm saying that because there's a prideful wickedness in us that needs to be recognized as belonging to something that is successful in the eyes of the world. Over and over and over again in the scripture, the Lord demonstrates to us that success is obedience only. It doesn't get measured according to the numbers. It's measured by God's pleasure in our obedience. We have to follow him. If we'll bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love, in his love. Not the love of the world, in his love as he defines it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Therein is the definition, obedience again, keeping his commandments. Well, if we were looking beyond the New Testament, those commandments we might think of as being burdensome. Christ fulfilled all of the Old Testament commandments for us. How do we fulfill them today? Firstly, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Secondly, as that produces his grace and his love in us, then we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, even the Greek philosophers taught that we should not do to others what we would not want done to ourselves. Jesus puts that in the positive. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think that a lot of Christians take those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we think of it more along the lines of, if I don't do bad, then that equals doing good. Right? My neighbor offended me. And I didn't retaliate. So I have fulfilled the golden rule. That's not what's being said. 
the golden rule of loving your neighbor as yourself is doing for your neighbor what you would want done for yourself. Looking out for them, caring for them, giving to them, working, serving as Christ served. If we are following these commandments, loving in the way that Jesus did, it causes us to be proactive in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. How is the joy of the Lord accomplished? Through being selfless. The per pursuit of self always brings sorrow. It's such a great joy to serve others, to think about their needs and do for them. When we do for ourselves, you know, that's what psychology says. You need a little me time. Got to take care of yourself. Got to do for you. What are you doing for yourself? What kind of hobbies do you got? You know, do you ever take time away? Do those things. And how miserable does it make you? Now, if you're thinking, oh, well, I've done that and it was actually quite enjoyable. Okay, I'll give you that. When you had to come back to where it was necessary to serve others, because that always comes about. Take the vacation. Go off and do your thing for a while. When you get to come back and start serving other people again, it's amazing how frustrating that can be. When we've taken the time for ourselves, served self, and it's time to end that, and now get back to serving others, oh, our flesh hates that. Our flesh absolutely goes bonkers with that. The place where I've most realized this is in going away for men's conferences and sending my wife away for women's retreats. If, if we are at home thinking, at last, now I can watch football 24 hours a day. I can eat pizza and Ben and Jerry's every meal. Hot dogs, ramen noodles. When we pursue self, and then the wife comes home, and we've actually got to pick up our dirty socks and do our dishes and start eating salad again. Wow, life is terrible. The frustration is amazing. I've recommended to brothers who have experienced this to prepare a project for their wife so that when she leaves, they're actually working for her while she's gone. Maintain the house as though she were there all the time. Eat responsibly. Don't just eat all that junk food that you like. You know, every meal, sardines. You know, I don't know. What it is. Whatever it is that you like. Serving self. The flesh is tricky. And if we pursue that selfishness, the detriment on the other end of that, it's so much more fulfilling. You want his joy. You want to his joy to be full in your life. It's through selflessness. We wouldn't think that. It's, that's backwards, right? Serving others will make me happy? That doesn't make any sense. It does in God's economy. If we will do the exact opposite of what comes natural to us, we will experience the fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. The idea of I couldn't take anymore. I'm stuffed to the gills with joy. I couldn't possibly swallow any more of this. You know? It's kind of like Thanksgiving, you know, dinner of joy. Yeah, I don't know if you're like me, yeah. You start out with that first round, and you just heap it on. And then you're looking at the second round, and you like get all the good stuff, you know? Avoid all the other things and just go for those luxury items. And you know there's dessert, but somehow you convince yourself that I can take all of this and then somehow also fit in a slice of pie or I don't know, whatever. And now, you know, you're sitting, you know, fading into unconsciousness. 
thinking I, if anybody even asked me if I wanted one more morsel, I probably would be nauseated. I can't, I can't have any more food. That's the idea of this fullness of joy. Getting to the place where I couldn't possibly take any more of this in. Being glutted with joy. That, that's a, a wonderful prospect. How do we do that? Selflessness. Serve others. Serve others. You know, the most depressed you're ever going to be is looking out for number one. Taking care of yourself. Being selfish. That is just going to produce an extreme frustration in your life. It never produces anything fruitful. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Right? We, we put that up on Memorial Day. Absolutely true. Service men and women, soldiers that have given their lives. Jesus Christ dying at the cross. Absolutely, without question, that is a portion of what's being said here. But you got to look at Peter, actually, for the example of this, because Peter wanted to be that soldier. Again, the religious leaders came to Pilate and said, these Christians, these disciples of Jesus, have said Jesus would rise from the dead, so we're afraid they're going to come and steal his body and start a rumor. We want you to secure his tomb with the Roman seal so that no one can interfere with Jesus Christ's burial. And the scripture records that he dispatched a cohort of guards to go arrest Jesus and secure the tomb. That's 600 soldiers. Then you had the temple guards that came with them and the priests who came with them. You've got a crowd of over 600 people that arrive in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus Christ. And Peter rips out his sword and attacks the crowd. In my opinion... Peter was fulfilling exactly what he said, that he would die at Jesus' side. Jesus stops that proceeding and says to Peter, put your sword away. And later he had, or earlier he'd had that discussion with him of how someday you will be led away to die. The conversation of dying to yourself, taking up your cross, we would prefer... Maybe not when we're sitting around and just thinking about it, but when it comes to the moments where we've got to take up our cross, die to ourselves, and serve someone else, we hate that so much that our heart screams out something to the nature of, I'd rather go out in a blaze of glory than have to endure this. Dying to ourselves, sacrificing ourselves on the cross. Yeah, that's part of what Jesus is saying. But more what he's saying. Listen to how he's saying this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus first love us? He emptied himself of all of his glory. He came to this earth and he lived as a servant. Who wants to do that? Nobody wants to wash feet. Nobody wants to take the lowest position. If eternal life is on the other side, we'd gladly go out in a blaze of glory. Let them build a monument and erect a plaque in my name for where I died for Christ. Sure. Wait, I've got to be unrecognized and insignificant and trudge along through this trench where daily I just serve other people without anybody even noticing what I am or what I'm doing? Love as I have loved. 
This commandment is amazing. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Laying it down as Jesus did. Serving, humbling ourselves. I think the church has completely lost touch with what this means. The church wants recognition. Oh, if I could have the highest position, if everybody could know who I am, if my name could be over the door, will cast evangelistic healing ministries worldwide, you know, national, you know, if I could have a name, you know, New York Times best-selling author will cast, you know, if, if we could have a name that's recognized, what if we're insignificant? You know, I often point at William Tennant. There's a book about his life called A Vision That Changed a Nation. William Tennant was here in America in the mid-1700s, extending through the late 1700s. And the law was that to be an ordained minister, you had to go back to Europe and receive your ordination. You had to go to school and receive your ordination. Definitely no one in the Americas could do that. Certain people that were already in Europe could be trained and then come here, but then they had to go through the great hardship of leaving all of the success and prosperity that was Europe and coming to this about to be newly founded country of hardship and toil. There weren't many ministers lining up to do that. Tenet began to train young men to be ministers. He got in a lot of trouble with the established universities in Europe for teaching men here because they were supposed to go back to Europe. Those men became some of the greatest preachers in the world. And they taught the people of America so thoroughly that those people rose up and founded the nation we're living in today. The universities of Europe mocked his schools here and referred to them as the log colleges because they were just log cabins where he held classes every day. And they are literally today Dartmouth and Princeton and Yale. They were schools of missionary training. And they sent missionaries all over the world. He did that without anyone knowing who he was. He just wanted young people to know the Lord. He just served and taught. His classes began at 5 a.m. He normally went until 9 p.m. Teaching all day. Hebrew and Greek classes starting at 5 a.m. Some of them, uh, during certain segments, start, started class started at 4 a.m. So he was getting up and getting ready for the day in order to be there and begin teaching at 4 or 5 a.m. No one knew who he was, other than to mock him. A vision that changed a nation. You're sitting here today because of William Tennant. A man who went unrecognized, emptied himself, taught, loved as Christ loved. I hope you can do that in your own life. Serve without recognition. Love, lay down your life for your friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. I had a conversation with some people this morning after the morning service. And they said, oh, this wonderful service, really appreciated that. And, you know, I'm glad you teach verse by verse. But boy, those books of prophecy those are difficult to understand, and I'm glad that, you know, there aren't a lot of things being taught about those. And we took a quick look at the book of Revelation together in the entryway of the church. as they were leaving. And I showed them right here, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Here's John giving you the divine outline for the entire book. You don't have to wonder how the book is laid out. One verse tells you how the whole outline of the book is going to go. 
And then when you finish the history of the churches from there in chapter 1 all the way through to verse 1 of chapter 4, that's where he tells you once the church is taken out, meditata, after the things of the church, that's where the tribulation is going to begin and all of those things in Revelation begin to unfold. They've never seen that before. That was a revelation to them. My point was the book is designed for revealing. It's designed for understanding. Jesus Christ is saying, I call you friends because things aren't hidden from you anymore. Everything I have, I'm giving it to you. Everything I have so that you can understand it. Everything the Father's revealed to me, I'm going to reveal to you. John on the island of Patmos. And now the church has it. And when we open the book of Revelation, it says right there, blessed is anyone who reads, blessed is anyone who hears these words. Jesus Christ has given us these glorious understandings. It's not a great mystery. You don't have to be a profound scholar to see these things. The men who act like that are actually holding those things back. They're actually keeping themselves and others from digging in them and understanding. Christ has given us what we need to know because he has befriended us. He doesn't call us servants as he did previously. Now make no mistake. He is worthy of every ounce of reverence you can muster. As I've pointed out before, every one of the Gospels, when it is recorded, they do get to that place of friendship and friendliness with Jesus. But once he is resurrected, they refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is only referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. They have a reverence for him that's irreplaceable and so should we yes friends but he is our king he is our master he is our lord we are his ambassadors and we should represent him appropriately there shouldn't be a flippant approach of friendliness how honorable that the king would befriend us it still means you bow your knee in his presence. It still means you bow your head in his presence because of his lordship. It isn't a dumbing down of his deity or his person. I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, all of my Calvinist brothers jump in right here. And they say, see, we didn't choose him. He chose us. There's no choice in the matter. Well, I'm not going to argue with them. He's specifically referring to the 11 that he's chosen. He's talking about the apostles in this moment. You didn't choose me. You were fishing. You didn't choose me. You were collecting taxes. You didn't choose me. You were a zealot. I came and chose you. Right? We have choice to make. Right? God is sovereign and he chose us. And we also must choose him. You want to know whether he chose you? Choose him and then you'll know. I'm not going to argue with those that want to insist that the points of Calvinism are the only way to view things. These things I command you, that you love one another. That's unconditionally. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. I love the fact that as Jesus is 
teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he comes to that point and says, Blessed are you when you are reviled for my name's sake. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Such an interesting thing to me. Simply being mocked as a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus makes that equal to being one of the prophets. How remarkable is that? We may never think of ourselves as having any elevated status, right? I never went out and preached. I didn't stand up in the middle of the square and shout to everyone that God's judgment was coming. No one listened to me. I didn't call a nation to repentance. You know, who am I? Have you ever had people mock you, right? Disassociate from you, say ill things about you, hang up the phone on you? Have you ever experienced that rejection because of your relationship with Christ, because of what you were saying, teaching and preaching? Jesus made you equal with the prophets. So they treated the prophets who were before you. That's quite remarkable. If you get the opportunity to experience hardcore persecution and rejection, that's always interesting too. You know, death threats over the phone, people physically spitting on you in public. Those are always fun experiences to go through. The Lord will allow certain things to happen. Right? What did he tell us? Don't fear the one that can kill the body and after that have no effect upon you. And they do the worst they can do to this frame. That's the best thing they could ever do for us. Send us straight into the presence of the Lord. We have no fear of them. Also, they can't take us before the appointed time. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. It's not as though it happened too soon. Oh, you know, some horrible attack occurred, and those Christians died over there. That was exactly the moment they were supposed to die. All things are still under his control. Hey, Al, can you uh, grab the AC and shut both of those off? All thing, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Now that's an interesting point because there are those that say things like, oh, well, I'm very spiritual and I believe in God. I just can't stand Christianity or Jesus Christ. Uh, you don't have any relationship with God. If you hate Jesus Christ, then you hate God. It's as simple as that. There's no way around it. Mostly because, well, Jesus is God. If you hate him, then you hate God. You can act like you are spiritual all you want. Uh, I, you know, I'm still waiting for somebody to show me something different. When people say that to me and they have no reverence for Jesus Christ at all, oh, I'm a deeply spiritual person. I say define that. And as they define it, when it's, and I'm not mocking them, Every single time I've asked that question and gotten answers, what I'm able to decipher is they're a deeply emotional person. And I, and I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. They, they might be deeply compassionate. They see bad things happening. They want to get involved. They understand the difficulties of this world. They want to do something about it, you know? They hear certain music that's just so beautiful, and they're moved deeply emotionally. That's all emotion. Emotion. Spiritual can affect the emotion, but they are not one and the same, right? I think every one of us has had experiences with the Lord where we were moved to excitement. We were moved even to anger over things that we saw going on in the world around us. We were moved with compassion and love and just, just floored by whatever we were experiencing with the Lord. The spiritual experience can yield deep emotional circumstances, but deep emotional experiences do not equal spirituality. 
That's a, a misconception of the world. You want to love God, then you've got to love Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be spiritual, is to love Jesus. If I had not done among you them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus' miracles were so undeniable that their importance could not be mistaken. He said that over and over again. You don't believe me? Believe the miracles. He, when he's saying to them, I've done these works among you, and if I had not, then you'd be without sin it's sort of hyperbole he's you know saying to them it's because of the miracles i've done amongst you that you're so guilty you consider nicodemus john chapter 3 verse 2 came to jesus by night he was a ruler of the jews okay there's only 70 of them from amongst the pharisees and he says, Rabbi, we, we know. Who? The, the religious leaders. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then they chant three years later, crucify, crucify. This is the condemnation Jesus is speaking of. If I hadn't done the miracles amongst you, you'd be guiltless of calling for my crucifixion. It's the fact that I've been here and you've seen firsthand and you've made the confession that you know these works are done by God. And yet you hate me and you're about to crucify me. You bring the condemnation. The nation as a whole rejected both Jesus and the Father because in their sins, they love darkness rather than light. Again, John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, and nothing has changed. What we are experiencing this week as our nation stands in the place where it could potentially shift where the balance of judgment act might actually get leveled out a little bit. Those that love darkness hate that light. And they are willing to stand up and attack it with everything they've got. Because they do not want to see the light radiate into the darkness that they've created. They want the darkness to continue. It is raw evil. Raw evil is what you're experiencing. You know, people say things to me about, oh, you know, this politician, that politician. I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble, but look at the Democratic Party and look at the wickedness they have created. Are there wicked men in the Republican Party? Without question. Without question. I'm not trying to say anything to the contrary. What I'm saying is as an organization, as an entity, you don't see the Republican Party trying to kill over a million unborn children annually. You don't see them trying to advance the work of evil in our society. Okay, these two parties, there is one that's wicked in its organization, in its structure, in its conduct. You know, these people talk, oh, you can't say those things. That's not true. You know who preaches that every single day? Democratic Party. You understand that it was a Democrat that made the law that said, I can't stand here and endorse a particular candidate. It was Democrats that did that. 
You understand that it's not a law. I can stand right here and I can personally, as the pastor of this church, endorse whatever candidate I want to, to this congregation. They manipulate the law. Oh, separation of church and state. There's no separation of church and state. There isn't any. It's not constitutional. What the Constitution says is that the government can't interfere with our religion. That's not separation of church and state. That's separation of state from the church. Stay out of the church. That's the way the Constitution was designed. Don't tell me what I can do here, what you can do here. That's the way that was designed. There is a wickedness, and it's the same exact thing. I'm not just going down my political bent here. Jesus is looking right at the men who are the political and the religious leaders of his day, and he is confronting them in this. You men love darkness more than the light. That's why you advance the things you do. Sin is so irrational. It's so irrational. It's an unfortunate thing we're experiencing. To close it out, John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, oh, praise God, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit, capital S, of truth, who proceeds from the Father? A person who, not it, not a power, not an entity, not something that can be measured and weighed in volume or voltage, It is a person. The Father will send the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That Spirit of truth. That Spirit within us. The baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit flooding our lives. Certainly. Certainly, the Holy Spirit is needed today, the same as it was in Acts chapter 2. It certainly has taken on newer forms. It isn't always going to be in the way that it was in the past. You can experience the baptism of the Spirit slowly over time as you surrender yourself more and more to the work of the Lord. Instantly and suddenly, if you wish, and that's how the Lord is going to work in your circumstance, but the baptism of the Spirit, that Spirit of truth, needs to come upon every one of us. Another brilliant teacher, who was less known than he should have been, Leonard Ravenhill, I've quoted many times, In his book, Why Revival Tarries, he said, The question is not, how much of the Holy Spirit do you have? The question is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? That's the truth right there. That's the truth. How much have you yielded? How much have you surrendered? As I said this morning, What is being described there is actually possession, spiritual possession. Christians don't often think of it as that way. What you're talking about is you ceasing to exist and the Spirit of Christ existing in you. The world doesn't need you or me. Who are we? Sinful beings. Now the Lord will use us. He will use us, especially surrendered, but that's what it comes down to, is the surrender. I would close this evening with a recommendation of Andrew Murray's book, Absolute Surrender. Small booklet, small booklet, little tiny guy, small booklet. One of those books that's so weighty that you're just a few pages in, And it's convicted you so deeply that you just have to stop sometime for days and just really examine, am I even a believer when you're hearing what this man is saying? So rich. I don't know. To illustrate it, 
I always get a little strange. Forgive me. There were a few recipes my grandfather, Ralph Bolster, had, and they were all lost because they were in his head. Now, members of our family to this day insist that they make chocolates, popcorn balls, and Ralph's chocolate pie the way that he did. And I say they're all liars. Because that man could make a popcorn ball that would pull the fillings out of your head. So good. Crazy. Just old school, old fashioned, handmade popcorn ball. Perfect. That thing was perfect. Just nothing more thrilling as a child than to get one of those. You know, this time of year. He'd show up at our house around Christmas. All of the kettles and pots and ingredients to make chocolates, handmade chocolates, dipping every single one of them. You eat more in the process of making them. Just whip yourself into a chocolate-covered sugar frenzy. It was crazy. It's chocolate pie. My wife experienced Ralph's chocolate pie while he was alive. She's shaking her head yes right now. Little tiny sliver. You... People would say, oh, I'll take a big piece of that. No, you're not going to. So rich, so dense. Just, you know, the only way you could, glass of milk didn't do any, you like black coffee. Like sit with a little tiny slice of that pie, black coffee, and you're going to be awake for, don't eat it at night. You'll be up all night, you know, rearranging the garage or I don't know what. Just crazy, so sweet, so chocolate, so rich, so dense the Holy Spirit that small amount so rich so dense so fulfilling there are so many things that people describe within Christianity as being that experience oh that concert oh that sermon oh that yeah the density the richness of the Holy Spirit the small touch the change in our heart, the depth of his work, the total possession of the person, surrender, absolute surrender. Oh, the world would be changed if those who called themselves Christians were given over to the richness that is the Holy Spirit. They would surrender to the recipe of Christ rather than what men have said. Oh, this is this is what it is. Or that's what the Holy Spirit is. Or this is what a spirit-filled church service is. Read the history. Read the history of what happens when you're reading that little book of Andrew Murray's Absolute Surrender and you're realizing that when the Holy Spirit was being poured out on the church. Itinerant preachers were traveling in circuits and they would send messages to those preachers and say, will you come preach? And they were so busy, they would say, I will come, but I don't know when. Be prepared because I'll just show up. Those men would arrive and the people unaware they were coming, would already be shaking and weeping, and they would already be, you know, six, eight, ten deep at the altar, at the front of the church, repenting and confessing their sins, receiving Christ, when the preacher walked through the door. The Holy Spirit. What is it the church is experiencing today? Self-indulgent entertainment is what a lot of it is that's what a lot of it is may we not be people that are doing that may we be men and women who are absolutely surrendered to the lord amen amen let's stand and we'll pray father god we thank you for your word Lord, we pray that you'd give us that strength 
to be men and women of absolute surrender. That our lives would not belong to ourselves. That we would give ourselves over to you. That we would see your work accomplished in our hearts first. In our families, our homes, our communities, the world. Help us to yield to the helper whom you sent. The world would be changed by you working in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay in fellowship as long as you want to.